Okay, we're rolling. Um, so go ahead and get started here. Uh, this is Gloria Spetian, neighborhood liaison to the Mexican American community at the Austin History Center. We are today, um, Thursday, October the 18th, 2012, here at the Emma Barrientos Mexican American Cultural Center in the conference room. It is currently 3.07 p.m. and I am interviewing Laura Esparza. Uh, Laura, do you give me permission to uh, conduct this oral history interview on behalf of the Austin History Center? Yes, I do. Okay, great. Now, we'll first start off, if you will, um, I will have you say your complete name, and then if you will spell it out for transcription purposes. My name is Laura Esparza, and it's spelled L-A-U-R-A-E-S-P-A-R-Z-A. Okay. Um, where were you born, and can you give me a little bit background about your family? I was born in San Antonio in uh, 1958. And um, my family is one of the founding families of San Antonio. I'm descended from uh, the Canary Islanders. And then I am descended from Gregorio Esparza, who uh, died in the battle, battle of the Alamo. His wife and four children survived the battle. And I'm descended from one of those children, Manuel, who was five uh, during the battle. Uh, my great-great-great-grandfather uh, uh, was uh, a part of the uh, revolution. He believed in it, and he had joined in Juan Seguin's army. Uh, and so we consider ourselves, oh, part of the uh, fabric, I guess, of uh, uh, the beginnings of Central Texas. Mm. Uh how old, or, or did you live in Austin, I mean in San Antonio, I'm sorry, in San Antonio up until you were a teenager, or when did you? I uh, went to Incarnate Word High School in, in San Antonio, and then one semester of St. Mary's University. Then I transferred to Rice University, uh, where I was for two years, and then I left Texas altogether. I went to live with my sister, in Vancouver, British Columbia, and uh, a little bit later, about a, a year and a half after going up there to be near her, I went back to college at uh, Fairhaven College, Western Washington University in Bellingham, Washington. Uh, how many brothers and sisters do you have? I uh, have four brothers, and I had one sister. Okay. Uh, when did you move to Austin, and in what part of the city did you live in? I moved to Austin for the job, uh, and um, although I had been coming here all my life because my brothers uh, moved to Austin when they went to UT, or and when my parents were elderly and disabled, uh, my brothers moved them to live in Austin. So I used to come back here to visit my parents. Uh, I first, uh, when I first got here, I rented a, an apartment on Brody, you know. I lived in uh, southeast Austin yeah. a little bit, too, um, so. 
I'm very familiar with Brody because I mm -hmm. don't live too far away from yeah. Brody and Slaughter. Uh -huh. So, um, what uh, were you during your your going to university and so forth? Were you involved in any organizations or student organizations or movements within the areas that you lived in? Well, um, you know. It was really in uh, when I went it, to school in Bellingham, and I was inspired by the work of Bill Strickland, who uh, founded the Manchester Craftsmen's Guild, uh, that I wrote a degree based on uh, his work uh, called Community Arts Development. And I was really interested in learning about everything that you needed to know to start and run a community arts organization. So I ran the campus gallery, I uh, worked for the radio station, I had radio shows, uh, and at that time I was really in, interested mostly in feminist art and theater. I directed plays and wrote plays, and uh, they were mostly in the realm of feminist theater. Um, and so I, uh, really became much more interested in Latino arts, Latino theater, when I moved to Seattle. And I met a group of Latino writers there that were struggling to uh, get something going in Seattle, because there, there wasn't a lot of cultural activity. Um, and so uh, together with these writers, we started the first uh, uh, Dia de los Muertos um, celebration in Seattle. Um, the writers' organization that uh, we started is still going uh, right on in Seattle right now. Uh, so we, we did a lot of work to try and create uh, some artistic presence there. What did you get your degree in? My degree was called Community Arts Development, and it's a degree that I wrote myself. I went to a college where um, it was an alternative college where you could go to the university and take any class you wanted to take as long as it fit into your thesis. And my thesis, Community Arts Development, was everything that I needed to know to start and run a community arts organization. And of course now that's what I do. Yeah. I run a lot of community arts organizations. And so I learned about business, I learned how to you know, um, build stage uh, sets and uh, do lighting design. I learned arts administration. Uh, I learned how to critique art, art history. Um, and, um, and I started a theater. I uh, started a theater called Sister Stage. Oh. In, Can you uh, give us a little bit of background about that? Sister Stage was a feminist theater that uh, I started with another woman that I met in college, and uh, I trained uh, young women in all aspects of theater, from stagecraft uh, to acting, and I directed all of the plays. And uh, we, um, they were mostly plays by women uh, and about you know women's empowerment. Um, that's really how I got my start was in women's theater. And which was great because and having a women's theater it was a very safe environment in which to 
work in, in areas that were primarily male-dominated, like stagecraft. Um, I was really interested in design at this time, uh, lighting and, and set design, mm -hmm. and it was something that I could really explore and uh, do in a, in a very safe environment. But it was during that period of time that I really found my voice as a theater director. And uh, I went on in that work uh, as a theater director for 20 years. Have you had an opportunity to do something like that here in Austin to be involved in theater? Unfortunately, my job takes a whole lot of time. But what I did have been able to do was I wrote a play about my um, historical uh, roots about Gregorio and Anna, my great-great-great-great-great-great-grandparents. Uh, um, and uh, I talk about what it was like to grow up in a uh, Mexican family that was imbued with uh, history mm -hmm. and with these um, conflicts of loyalty and uh, racism. Um, uh, so I've had the chance to perform that. It's a one-woman show, and it's kind of a little bit easier to do, and you know, as opposed to directing yeah. a whole play. Yeah. And so I've had the opportunity to perform that at uh, some of my sites oh. here at the Mac and at the Susanna Dickinson. Oh, is that in some archives right now? No, it's not. Would you like to have it in archives? Sure, I'll put it in archives. There's probably not many feminist Alamo plays out there. No, you can start your own archives and hey, you know, that's yeah. how it'll get in there. Um, so, okay, let's go as to, when you moved here to Austin for your job, um, what period was that, that with your involvement with the MAC then? What, what well, I came and visited here. I was living in San Antonio. I was the director of the Alameda Museum, and I was in charge of building and opening the museum. It was a very difficult job. It was fraught with a lot of um, uh, problems, um, and I knew that it, it was not going to last. <laughs> so uh, it, was, it was a little heartbreaking. Um, and so while I was finishing up that museum, and I knew that I wanted to finish it, uh, yeah. that that was my goal. Um, at this, uh, I heard that there were some jobs opening in Austin. So I came to Austin with some friends uh, and uh, to see the site here of the Mexican American Cultural Center. And Jaime Beeman happened to be on site and knew my friend. And uh, they got to chatting. I met with Jaime. Uh, we immediately hit it off. Uh, and, uh, you know, this was a project that I had learned about five or six years previously. So I've, because I've opened so many or worked on so many different Latino cultural centers all over the country, it's just kind of an avocation to me to understand and hear about another Latino cultural center being opened. Um, and so I wanted to come see for myself how it was going. It was very exciting, uh, and Jaime was uh, really a, uh, a beacon uh, for me. 
He told me that they had filled the position of manager uh, for the MAC, but there was another position that was open, and that was the division manager position that oversaw the MAC and uh, several other um, facilities. At that time, um, there were seven facilities, I believe, in my division, cultural facilities, and now I have 12. So that it's grown. It's grown. It's grown from. Yeah, yeah it, it really has grown. And of course, it grew with the MAC opening, uh, which I, when I got the job um, as division manager, it was the early part of June uh, when I started and moved to Austin. Of course, all my brothers are here, yeah. so they were just waiting for me uh, to arrive, and I had plenty of places to stay while I was looking, you know, for a place. Um, but the um, uh, first task was to uh, get the MAC ready for the grand opening and to finish the uh, what they call the the, the punch list uh, process. So walking through the building and uh, and seeing what needed to be adjusted. So there wasn't a lot that I could do or adjust at that point in time. It was, you know, pretty much a done deal all the way around. Um, there were some things I would have done differently uh, had I been involved with the design earlier on. Um, but because the architecture was so uh, similar to me uh, to another building that I had um, started from the ground up and got to open, the Mexican Heritage Plaza in San Jose, I knew the kinds of uh, difficulties they were going to have with the buildings. Um, that was, uh, that Mexican Heritage Plaza was built by one of the architects that participated in the design of the MAC. Um, and who was that? Um, uh, I told you. Oh, uh, yes, um, yes. Del Campo. Yes. Um, Martin Del Campo. Mm -hmm. Now, Martin uh, was the sole architect of the Mexican Heritage Plaza. And, of course, the MAC had three architects. Um, I think when all was said and done, uh, Martin was a little less prominent in the team uh, by, because by that time he was quite elderly. He must have been in his 80s, and his health was failing. Uh, and so, um, but we talked many times, Martin and I, about the MAC. Mm -hmm. And I knew it was the apple of his eye. And um, so I always felt like, ah, you know, I can tell Martin uh, that I've seen it. But of course, he died in February, um, about six months before we opened. Um, you you uh, have given me a list of some of the uh, uh, places that you've worked and uh, some of the different uh, cultural centers that you've been involved with. Can you give us a brief, brief background about each one of those places and the similarities and differences and problems that you might have encountered along oh, yeah. the way? Um, we, do we have enough time? <laughs> <laughs> well, after uh, I got my degree in community arts development and uh, finished uh, the theater company that I had started there, 
I moved to Seattle, Washington uh, from Bellingham, uh, where I met a man named Ruben Sierra. And Ruben was from San Antonio, uh, but he had been in Washington State for many, many years. Uh, and he had started a multicultural theater on the campus of the University of Washington called the Group Theater. And so I became an intern at the Group Theater uh, where I ran, I was the uh, coordinator of the Multicultural Playwrights Festival. And I get to, got to meet playwrights from all over the nation. We would mount their plays in uh, two-week workshop productions. Um, and uh, we would have, you know, four to six playwrights there um, doing uh, rewrites of their plays, and then we would mount these rewrites so we could see the writing process progress. So I was at the group theater for two years doing the Multicultural Playwrights Festival and directing a little bit on the side um, when uh, I got a fellowship to go to UCSD in La Jolla. Uh, to be in the first class of the um, MFA program in Latino arts, in Latino theater, started by Dr. Jorge Huerta. And Jorge was my mentor. Um, and uh, so I was in the directing program there with 11 other students uh, where we um, solely focused on uh, plays in Spanish and in English from multiple Latino cultures. Um, and it was there that I really got to know the literature uh, and the culture of my culture, as well as uh, many other uh, Latino cultures. Uh, wrote some plays and directed lots and lots and lots of plays. Uh, so I got my MFA in Latino theater at uh, UCSD. Um, and uh, that kind of got me um, into um, San Francisco, and I was in San Diego. We started a little theater company in San Diego uh, that we ended up taking to Europe and taking a play across Europe uh, that was in Spanish and English. That was a really interesting uh, time. And then um, after that, I got a job, even before I finished graduate school in San Francisco, at the Mission Cultural Center to um, renovate and open a Latino theater in the Mission Cultural Center right on uh, Mission Street and 24th. Uh, and so that was really kind of my first renovation project, uh, building, rebuilding that theater um, and uh, developing. I worked a lot with Teatro de la Esperanza um, there as one of our resident uh, theater companies. Um, and, you know, built up um, a really strong program there. When I got the TCG NEA Directors Fellowship, which is, was given to four directors, theater directors, nationwide, every other year. And so it was a very rare honor um, by the NEA, where they supported me uh, for a year to travel around the United States and um, learn from the great directors. Um, so I lived in New York and upstate um, New York and Hartford, uh, Connecticut, um, in uh, Los Angeles and Portland. Um, 
I worked with directors like Anne Bogart and Ping Chong and um, uh, Peter Sellers. And it, it was a, a wonderful opportunity to uh, go to lots of different theater, theaters, uh, theater towns, um, uh, communities. And wherever I went, I would look for where is the Latino Centro? <laughs> where are the Latinos in Minneapolis and what are they doing? Where are the Latinos in Hartford and what are they doing? Um, and uh, I found examples of, of uh, organizations and buildings in several different states, yeah. you know, in several different uh, uh, stages of their development. Uh, so it was a good, that was a great education in learning how similar um, some of the mistakes are, you know, how important it is to Latinos to have these spaces, uh, desperately important. Um, what kinds of buildings worked for people, what kinds of stages and furniture and uh, conditions worked for the art. Um, and so while, you know, I learned a lot about directing plays, I was really looking at organizations and buildings uh, and how, uh, what was the practice across the country. And so after I got back from the NEA uh, year, the TCG NEA year, I got a job at the theater where I was an intern, the group theater. And so I went back to the group theater this time as associate artistic director, not as the intern. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I got to uh, direct all of their educational plays that we took on tour throughout the state or that we did on the main stage. I got to direct main stage plays as well and write. Um, and that was very exciting. I managed their education program and started something called the um, uh, the People of Culture program where I went into schools and I talked to kids about how to understand the plays from the point of view of the cultures that we all have. And then um, I left there, I took a brief respite and uh, taught at um, uh, the Seattle Community College District uh, where I founded uh, a program in arts administration and it was focused on people of color who were interested in becoming arts administrators and they asked me to start a program, an academic program there and I also taught some ethnic studies classes as well. It was at about that time that I got a call uh, from Pete Carillo uh, to go uh, to San Jose to build the Mexican Heritage Plaza which was a $38 million construction on an eight-acre site that was shared with a senior housing uh, building. And we had, uh, there were five buildings planned uh, at the Mexican Heritage Plaza with about 40,000 square feet of um, programmable space, a 500-seat theater, um, a, a small museum, um, an education facility, uh, a garden, and a beautiful uh, multi-purpose room. And so that um, was just a plan on a piece of paper when I got to San Jose. They had gotten the funding, uh, and they were about ready to get started on the project, and 
I was appointed to be the organization's representative on the building committee. And so I got to be a part of the process on behalf of the organization, um, you know, decide, making all of the decisions on, you know, upholstery and wall colors and where the plugs were going to go and what kind of lights we were going to have in the theater. And of course, all the theater and technical work that I had been doing and all of the looking around uh, the country that I had been doing helped me do that work. Uh, so that I could appoint a, um, a cultural center uh, that was not only functional for theater and exhibits, but was functional for the Latino community, because our community uh, uses spaces a little bit differently. Every community does, yeah. right? So, uh, for example, we made the orchestra pit uh, a little three feet deeper than it normally is, because when mariachis play, they stand up, they don't sit down. And so we wanted to have the mariachis in the pit so they could stand up and play for the folklorico, uh, and they wouldn't be seen, yeah. you know, while in the pit. Uh, when I went and they, I saw the furniture they had for the lobby, there were all these beautiful upholstered pieces with these high sides, high uh, arms on them. And I said, no, 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 no. When families come, they come in three generations and they all sit on top of each other. So we need to have good sturdy benches where the whole family can sit on top of each other, you know. The kids sit on Abuelita's lap and, you know, so we, we were able to craft a, a place, that, uh, really a city of art, um, that in its heyday um, was serving um, 40,000 students uh, with Latino arts programming uh, classes uh, and about 200,000 uh, visitors and um, participants in our Mariachi uh, music series, and our, um, we were a Smithsonian affiliate, and we had a, a very significant uh, first exhibit um, on uh, the life and work of Cesar Chavez, who grew up in that neighborhood. Uh, we had a, um, a concert series, um, as well as computer classes and classes in a wide variety of things. Every inch of the center was being used. How is the uh, population in comparison to Austin as far as Latinos? It's about the same. It's about the same all the way around. It had about a million people, and it was about 33% uh, Latino. Of course, Austin now is a little bit more. Mm -hmm. It's upwards of 40. Uh, but it was about 30, you know, the low 30s uh, for Mexican and Mexican-American uh, populations. So most of the, the Latinos were Mexican. Um, and we, the central was um, uh, right in the smack dab in the middle of the working class um, Latino community in San Jose. And so that might be a difference. It is a difference here because um, of gentrification. Um, the Latinos have moved elsewhere into another area away from the MAC, and uh, it's a challenge. It's been a challenge here. It also had the big sunny plaza 
Uh, we had the same kind of plaza in San Jose, and it was very problematic to use it during the summer. Uh, it was really difficult. Our building had the same deep porches, you know, uh, and so when we really needed extra classroom space, we set up classrooms in the deep porches and had classes outdoors uh, in the cool shade of the, of the porches. Um, so there have been some ways that I experienced that building in San Jose that I have been able to inform the staff here on how to use this building a little more robustly uh, and make it their own. Um, you know, so there were, you know, some differences. Ours were, was a square um, plaza, like a, uh, very much like a, um, what is the word I'm trying, hacienda style, mm, okay. which is actually one of the, is a, a traditional style of building cultural centers in Mexico, in, in the hacienda style. Which would have been, I'm sort of thinking of, what, Fiesta Gardens, the original. Yes, a lot like Fiesta Gardens. What they were going to do. Yeah, but only bigger, uh -huh. you know, and they could have made that choice here. I mean, they could have done a, a hacienda style, very traditional, but instead, he left it an open um, half circle so that uh, our visitors, our participants, would have the advantage of uh, looking at the lake uh, and the beautiful vista. Yeah. Uh, and so he, um, when Martin first told me about it, um, he, we were building, uh, the, we were just finishing up the Mexican Heritage Plaza. And in fact, the, the women on the board from Simaca came to visit uh, the Mexican Heritage Plaza when we were building it. And so um, they came out to visit, and I saw that they were wearing sandals. And I said, no, 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 you can't, you can't go on a construction site in sandals. You need to go buy some closed-toe shoes. So I think they ran off to, you know, um, a Save Less, you know, shoe, you know, mart that was in the neighborhood, bought some cheap tennis shoes and, uh, so that they could tour the site. And it was not, it was only until years and years later that I learned that they had been, they got into some trouble uh, with city council because they had spent money, a grant money, on shoes which appeared to be a personal expenditure, but it was in mm. fact a necess necessity to tour the site and think about what they wanted the Mexican-American Cultural Center to be like. Can you, do you remember some of those individuals that went to tour? Oh, it was uh, Valerie uh, Menard right. and Kathy Heron. I remember that distinctly. Uh, there might have been one other person, uh, might have been, um, um, Rowan. Because uh, they, how did they find out about your uh, San Jose? How did I don't really know, unless they found out about it through Martin del Campo, but I don't know if they knew Martin at that time. It was um, the largest Latino cultural center being built in the U.S. at the time. Um, and it, so it was right before the big centro in um, Albuquerque opened. So for, you know, a nanosecond, we were the largest one in the U.S. Mm -hmm. before Albuquerque opened. Yeah. 
So that would have been, what, but do you remember what year that was? In uh, 1997 was when we opened the Mexican Heritage mm -hmm. Plaza. And, um, you know, some of the same issues, you know, marketing issues, outreach issues, although we had done, I had done lots and lots and lots of outreach in the community, uh, getting involved with the Mayfair uh, community plan. Um, so I was there for three years, three, yeah, it was about three or four years when I got a call from San Antonio that they wanted me to come help them build um, a uh, Latino museum in uh, San Antonio. So of course my parents were still living at the time and they were in San Antonio, so I said, oh, that's an opportunity to go be near them, and I'm glad I did. I was with them for a couple of years, and I uh, we completed the the plan for the museum. Uh, of course, the mission statement and the format of the museum's programming exhibit tray, uh, and the Smithsonian affiliation. I'd also done a Smithsonian affiliation for the Mexican Heritage Plaza, and had a lot of really really great. Um, exhibition um, experiences with them when they were really getting going. In fact, I think we were the first or second um, uh, affiliate of the um, Smithsonian at the time. And then um, I moved to San Antonio and started working on the um, uh, museum, the Alameda Museum, when um, there was a dip in, I think it was 2001 when there was a recession, um, right after 9-1-1. And um, you know, there was no funding uh, for the museum to be found. Well, they've been having problems though, haven't they? Afterward, it continued. Yeah. Uh, and you know, I don't want to get into the details yeah. of that, um, but um, uh, anyway, the um, San Antonio uh, led to, <laughs> um, there was a change over, a turnover uh, at the um, Mexican Heritage Plaza. And so my friend Blanca Alvarado, who was on the board of the Mexican Heritage Plaza, longtime elected official in San Jose, called me up and said, we need you. We need you to come back. So I went back and I became the acting executive director and I think I was acting executive director for three years for a long, long time. And I uh, got the organization back on track out of uh, the red, um, got their programming back on track. Um, uh, things were going pretty well. Uh, when they decided to uh, hire the permanent executive director and they chose someone else. Ah, que lastima. So I went on my merry way. I um, uh, did some more work with an organization called First Act. It was an association of uh, uh, people in technology, creativity, and the arts to develop more of a quality of life in San Jose. And so I was their first administrative director 
and did a major international conference on creativity there in, uh, I think it was around 2004. Yeah. Um, and that was when the Alameda called me back and said, we need you now. <laughs> we got the money. So I went back to the Alameda in 2005 and I saw that some of the old problems were still the current problems and um, it was not, the problem wasn't about raising money, it was about the way money was being spent. Mm. And uh, you know, I come from a poor family uh, where uh, you count every penny and you were very, we were very frugal growing up, we didn't have a lot. And so it was really like, mm, this is not going to work out because they're not taking care of their, the basics, you know, in terms of the way that you manage money in a nonprofit. So um, I, um, at that point, ran into Jaime Beeman, and Jaime Beeman told me about this job and said, oh, you know, why don't you apply, you know? And ever since I joined in uh, 2007, I've been a kid in a candy shop building museums and renovating theaters and building new cultural centers just as fast as they can throw them at me. So now let's make a comparison mm -hmm. between the Mac and of course the Carver was already completed right. at the mm -hmm. time. Mm -hmm. Uh, what were some of the other ones that you were overseeing that were recent? Uh, well, when I came, you know, of course the Dowerty Arts Center had been in place for 30 years already. It's now 35, and it was a, and that was 30 years old. And of course the Zilker Hillside Theater had been there uh, for 50 years. It had been uh, an institution there for 50 years. Um, there was the Carver, and there was the, the Mac was the new one, but then there was also the Ney Museum and the O. Henry Museum, and that was what was here when I got started. Um, I uh, saw an opportunity to use these city resources to build community through the arts uh, by really focusing my um, staff on uh, how to um, um, do more uh, community engagement with the resources that we had. Uh, and that really has been uh, part of the theme is to look at, you know, look at the glass half full rather than half empty and look at how much you can do with what you've got. So I worked very hard. The Carver building had a lot of problems that had never been fixed. Um, and it took a lot of perseverance, but we have now resolved them all. Problems with the HVAC, problems with um, the theater lighting. Um, sometimes when you have a, a lead, it's a, it's a lead four, lead five building. I can't remember, I think it's a lead five building. Sometimes lead buildings are not always the most efficient um, buildings. It's one of the most complicated HVAC systems that the city has. Um, and it was very difficult to maintain it without 
a level of staffing that we didn't have. Um, and so some of the successes, you know, that I saw with the Carver is uh, leading a community a strategic planning process um, that is really going to set the, the, the pace of the Carver's development for the next 10 years. Um, this community group of stakeholders want to see phase two and phase three of the Carver built. Not in this bond, but in, bond, in a bond that may come in 2018. Um, they want to see more uh, turnover in the exhibits. Um, and so uh, I have submitted a Smithsonian ap application to become a, an affiliate again. And uh, they may host the first Smithsonian exhibit uh, in Austin. Um, we also um, are contemplating an after-school program there, although their education programming has really ramped up, and they have started doing more uh, exhibits uh, of an artistic nature, which was another thing that the community uh, asked for. Um, and so there, you know, two or three years ahead of the MAC in terms of its growth, um, and like the MAC, um, the Carver was a dream for the community for many, many years, and they had to fight hard for that building. And it was hard won. Um, and um, yet, Rome wasn't built in a day. If you build it, they will not come. You have to work and work and work to bring the community in and to let them know what is happening in their center. I guess their history in a way, and by their history I'm referring to those individuals, that they had a more cohesive working together uh, to get it built, to get it going, versus that of what the MAC has encountered. I would agree with you. I, I think there was more cohesion in terms of the um, uh, and also, they had the advantage of having had a cultural center in the old uh, library, um, and so in the Carver Library. And they had been doing programming in there for a long, long time. For them, the challenge was transitioning from a little, you know, thousand-foot space into a space that's 30,000 square feet and that had a lot of challenges with the building. And I think for the first five years, they were really quite, they, they were adjusting, really kind of trying to figure it all out, how to uh, make it work. And it, things have improved. I mean, things are, um, their theater schedule is all booked out. So um, they have a very, very busy theater schedule. Their uh, education programs fill up. Uh, they have a great summer camp called Broadway Bound that went from 10 children to 53 children last summer, in which the kids um, learn how to, you know, act and sing and build sets and run lights and do everything that you have to do in a theater. And they're eight or 10, mm -hmm. you know. Um, and so I've seen them really grow um, around that theater in particular, and right now we're trying to create some growth in the museum area uh, where uh, 
you know, the, the founders found it so important to tell the story of um, Austin's um, past, of uh, the, uh, um, uh, and the, the ancestors, you know, right. um, yes. that um, they put a lot of money and time into their permanent exhibits. Mm -hmm. And now that it's been six years, the community is going saying, uh, now what? What's next? Let's yeah. change it up a little yeah. and see, let's tell the story from a different perspective. But they have a good concept because when I was working on the Trailblazers, I went there to get ideas for an exhibit that would only stay six months at the History Center. But I mean, that tells yeah. the story of their community. That and, is so important, yeah. you know, it is very important. But what I've seen at other centers is that's a phase. Yeah. That it's important to have that information around or maybe in a pamphlet or it's a, uh, an exhibit that comes back uh, on occasion, but people move past that phase yeah. and they begin to ask for more. Yeah. And so that's where they're at right now. Mm -hmm. With the MAC, it's a little bit different in a certain sort of way because first of all, there are more Latino artists and this center is really more focused on art uh, than the Carver, which has been very centered on history uh, and has a, an archive and a collection, um, where the MAC um, has been really focused on mostly visual arts um, and uh, artistic development. Well, when we built the wing, uh, after this first phase uh, was built, when we, we built um, the education part of it, there was a classroom. The bottom floor was supposed to be classrooms. Um, but we have had a lot of problems with the multi-purpose room for intimate theater uh, because it's big um, and the houses look empty if you only have 50 people there and it's echoey for the spoken word, and it's white, and theaters are never white. Yeah. <laughs> and so um, I decided that we needed to transition that classroom downstairs into a black box theater. Uh, not, well, for theater, for intimate theater, uh, because that's the size of audiences that most Latino theaters have. Mm -hmm. uh, in town right now and you want the house to look really full. Uh, we built it out with uh, dressing rooms and a shower storage for the company and um, uh, a way of doing a flexible space so that the stage could go anywhere in the room. Um, and it it's also a very nice space for film. Um, very comfortable, very black you know, so it felt like a theater space. And that black box theater has served the community um, in this, you know, certain period of growth. With the next phase of the uh, max growth, we're going to be introducing the Latino Arts Residency Program. And this is very similar to a program that I had introduced in Mexican, at the Mexican Heritage Plaza the RAP program, or the Resident Arts Partners, was what it was called. And we adopted four uh, Latino theater companies um, 
theater and dance companies to live with us, rehearse there, and do their performances there. Um, and some of the RAP par partners are still there. The um, uh, uh, residents here are going to apply uh, competitively uh, and uh, we'll be able to pick two or three resident theaters that will live here for um, three and a half years. Uh, they'll be able to office here, have rehearsals and performances here at a cost that they can afford. So, so they will pay for it? Yes, instead of paying a rental fee, they will pay uh, a dollar of every ticket they sell. So they will pay, you know, predicated yeah. on how successful they are at yeah. the box office, right. you know. So it won't be a hardship. With the recession that we've just been through, we have seen uh, that our Latino uh, theater companies and dance companies are really struggling. And we fear that if we don't do something quickly, uh, that we're going to start losing them. And those are going to be local? Oh, yes. It's just Austin artists. We also will offer a three-month residency for these companies, smaller companies that are just kind of starting out. They're on their training wheels, and they need an experience to start building their resume of productions. And so we'll be able to offer them a three-month residency with the same terms. What is the next phase due? Well, it's all based on the bond. And right. of course, we're not in the 2012 bond. Um, the 2012 bond uh, really focused on things that needed to be fixed in the, box, in, in the Parks Department. Uh, the next phase, uh, which will be over uh, behind the, the museum over there, uh, will be uh, a theater and probably a parking garage. Uh, we've debated on whether we want to have the larger theater. There was originally slated to be an additional two theaters uh, built here, a 350-seat and a 1,000-seat theater. And um, I run theaters. And I know that staffing-wise, we would have to really ramp up. Um, that's expensive. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I'm not sure um, who uh, would be able to fill uh, a 1,000-seat house. So before we get in, you know, f very far into that investment, we need to create a business plan that could really validate um, who would yeah. be able to afford to use it, and would we be able to fill it, um, i.e., uh, in terms of audience numbers? Because yeah. Um, yeah. you, you know, having a theater that you use uh, twelve times a year is just not worth it. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Well, I know uh, in Victoria, which is relatively small, they finally did do one that was 450 seats, I believe. Mm -hmm. We were able to, the very first time that there was a bilingual, uh, uh, through an organization that I was founder and president of, we were able to bring in Las Nuevas Tamaleras from San Antonio. Oh, yeah. mm -hmm. And um, that was two performances on a Saturday night. Mm -hmm. 
and it was sold out in 450 and we were so surprised both uh, didn't know that that many people would attend something like that and of course that was the first time ever a bilingual so you might be surprised I mean you know it, it could be done I guess, but it, yes, like you said, it would take a lot of work and definitely and a lot of, you know. I think that perhaps the theater companies would need, need a little more time for growth yeah. in order to build their audiences. So before we get to the 1,000 seat house, we need to grow our theater companies so that yeah. they can put together um, you know more you know successful shows shows that uh, can bring in larger audiences um, so in some ways you have to scale um, the size of your theaters so that um, the companies that use them can be successful we had a 500 seat house at the Mexican Heritage Plaza and most of the time it looked empty. So it looked like the theater wasn't successful, like the theater company in residence wasn't successful. Mm -hmm. They had a solid audience of 250 people, but when you spread them out over a 500 seat house, it doesn't look very yeah. full, you know? And one of the advantages of the Carver Theater, uh, which was a bone of contention with the community, was that they wanted a very big theater too, uh, but um, a smaller theater, a 150-seat theater, was um, what was built. Um, but that theater um, is very um, is very uh, user-friendly because the steep rake in the in the house yeah. makes kind of closes in the space, and you feel a little bit closer to the stage. Um, and it feels a little more encapsulated uh, because of the steep rake that they uh, have in that theater. So, and you know, they sell out. They have full houses, so it looks successful. Now that they've had a lot of success with that theater, they're going to be ready for a bigger theater, um, you know, um, in 2018 or if they get the next bond. When is the MAG scheduled for? To be placed on a bond. If, is there if if there is a 2018 uh, bond, that would be the bond it would be on. Uh, but of course, it's up to uh, community activism yeah. Yeah, uh, to get something on the yeah. bond. Mm -hmm. uh, it is on a master list of uh, bond projects that the Parks Department has developed, but that's you know along with one point three billion dollars in infrastructure repairs yeah. and so when uh, things are selected for a bond they pick and choose um, the projects and uh, this bond that's currently coming up is going to be really the smallest bond uh, for the parks piece of it mm -hmm. that the parks department has ever had and that's like 350 million so, um, it's 300 and something million um, and that is the smallest bond they've ever had um, the uh, only new buildings that are coming out of that are uh, uh, is a new Montopolis um, 
Recreation Center because it really needs to be replaced. And hopefully a new Dowdy Arts Center because it must be replaced. Now let's go to the Asian American uh, mm -hmm. Center. Uh, what, in comparison to the MAC, in comparison to the Carver, is there a comparison? Well, the, they, in, in comparison, it's been a much shorter period of time of activism um, to get that project going. I think they've been working on it only 10 years as opposed to 30. Mm -hmm. So a much shorter period of time, very, very political. Um, so the political savvy of that group um, is on a very high level. Um, it's also a pan-Asian um, effort, and so they've been more successful in drawing together communities that have never been at the table together. And I think that's another difference. You know, all of our communities are um, somewhat divided and have issues. Um, Doing the, doing the grand opening uh, of the MAC was a doozy uh, because um, there were some people who uh, objected to other people even being invited, uh, let alone recognized uh, for their contribution. And, you know, it, it was a relay race. It was someone took up the torch for a few miles and then they passed the torch on to another group and they kept it going for a few miles and then they passed it on to another group. Um, and so, it, you know, it took a lot of different organizations to keep it going for the Mexican American Cultural Center. And at the uh, grand opening, we made special effort to thank everyone. And since we opened, we've had an expressed policy that everyone is welcomed here. We don't make, you know, we are blind to all of the conflicts of the past. Mm -hmm. You know, we just invite everyone here. I think that's what I see in so many ways, and that's why I wanted to talk about the three ethnic. Yeah. Uh, because making that comparison, and you can see the differences, and at the end, you know, at the end, everyone, as you said, is welcome, and there shouldn't really, I mean, this is, after all, a building uh, that was created by the community itself, working together, and that's should, what should be unified. Uh, the end result is going to be the future, mm -hmm. and the future has to see the current mm -hmm. working together so that they can, you know, Otherwise, they're not going to come because they will have seen all of this infighting and so forth. Right. And I think adopting the Latino Arts Residency uh, Project, which Council passed uh, in September, uh, will help a lot because what I found when uh, we had the resident partners in San Jose was that when you have a lot of artists around all day, they start to talk to one another, and they start to be creative with one another, and they create this sort of currency in the facility 
that is really open and fluid. Uh, it begins to be feel like a party every day, you know, like people are, then they start collaborating and doing things together that are greater than anything they could imagine alone. And so I, I think that that's going to be a really important step. I would have liked, if I had been here when the Carver opened, I probably would have done a similar thing at the Carver. Uh, in uh, developing resident artists. But the way the carver was designed, it doesn't have um, as many of the discrete spaces that the Mac has where you could carve out a rehearsal space or carve out an office space for um, uh, resident companies. So in some ways, the design of their building has been a hindrance. They also don't have very many uh, classrooms. And so it was built to be a museum and a theater, mostly, the Carver, and uh, has a lot of difficulty with being flexible, with being anything else. They're, the spaces aren't there. Um, and that's something that uh, I talked with at length. Now, the Asian American Resource Center is very efficiently designed. It's one of the most efficient uses of space I've ever seen in a cultural center environment uh, where they are going to have the capacity uh, to um, have the nine classrooms, a resource center, and a great big multi-purpose room that can be divided into eight more classrooms. So they have a capacity for 17 classrooms there. Um, a big outdoor space for festivals. And because we're partnering with one particular nonprofit, um, the Asian American Resource Center Foundation, um, they have been working the com uh, 10 different uh, communities, uh, not just one, well, um, Chinese, Japanese, Cambodian, uh, Indian, um, um, 10 different language groups, in fact, Vietnamese, uh, that are going to um, have already started booking their spaces. They have all, the community has already brought us uh, 53 different festivals to put on our calendar. Yeah. Uh -huh. So right. they're going to open it with a bang and be able to sustain it. They have learned. They have learned a lot. They have taken a look at all that is what has been going on and what you know, other Bullock and some of these others, that what they have, and they have gone in and been able to do that. They sort of put everything, whereas with us, it's, if you put the Hispanic community total, it's umbrella for statistical purposes. They have their umbrella, but it's, again, beyond that, the statistical, it's instead they're all working together yeah. to mm -hmm. have something and to be able to use that. Uh, again, I, I wanted the listener, the, those individuals that will listen to this, to have a better understanding also. Well, I think another big difference between the three is that um, certainly the African uh, American um, community was a much more landed American community, uh, having been U.S. citizens for a longer period of time. The Latino community 
Uh, 50-50, you know, in terms of new immigrants and landed uh, or assimilated um, Latino Americans. And in the Asian community, there is a much, much higher immigrant population. And so it's more like 75% of the population is immigrant. And so the needs that we will be serving at the Asian American Resource Center are a bit different because it is really an orientation to this country, uh, to this language, uh, to how to access city services, um, much more of an immigrant um, uh, orientation center. Uh, when are they scheduled to open? Uh, if all goes well, uh, we, the, we'll reach substantial completion in April. Um, and our community is hoping and praying. That means that we can have a grand opening in May. Uh, but I warned them that I've never been on a construction project that delivered uh, the building on time. It's very rare. And so uh, this building was considerably late when yeah. it opened. Yeah. Uh, and so um, it's very optimistic to say May, although they would like me to say May. It probably will be more like uh, August uh, when but it opened. Is May, uh, is it Asian American month? Yes, May? that's so why that's they wanted to open in May. Yes. <laughs> yes. But they're not ready. And the building, we may have a soft opening, i.e. we may be able to cut the ribbon and show everyone an empty building uh, because it may not, just may not be ready yet. Who is their architect? Do they have an architect that is? They do, and I don't know who it is. I haven't met them. I haven't been able, I haven't worked on um, the building uh, for very long because, uh, it, again, it was like the MAC. There was a nonprofit, the Asian American Resource Center Foundation, that was supposed to operate the building. And uh, so when they went into the bond, it was with the assurance that this nonprofit would be supporting the building. And so oh, a few, six months ago or so, um, the nonprofit came to the city and said, we're not going to be able to support the building. Mm. And uh, it became a city project. And um, th then they gave it to me. They assigned it to the Parks Department and to me. So uh, I'm very excited, you know, I'm, I'm like really into this. And so I'm very excited about uh, they're getting their center and uh, making it their own. And I think probably, you know, one of the hardest things to do is to be a city employee and uh, to run these centers because. Um, you um, can have very strong allegiances to your culture group, but at the end of the day, you have to uphold policies and procedures, you know. Yeah. You've got to do the city, you know, mm -hmm. bureaucracy thing. Mm -hmm. And some community members, I mean, they just cannot see that uh, you're on the same side, that we're all on the same side. Yeah. Uh, just because you've got to take care of city business. We just went through the policies training yesterday, uh -huh. three and a half hours, and 
the scary part at the end was okay. The last part was uh, records management. <laughs> it's just like, and I'm you know, um, it's like oh my god, you know, for three and a half hours, and they use puppets and all of that, and I'm sitting there thinking, okay, come on, you know, but it is, it is true. I mean, we've got to abide. Yeah, and those are policies that you know. Sometimes you think, well. Could it be something else that we can do away with this and instead let's use this? And But something is always happening that, you know, then you have to yeah. get all these changes. Oh, so yeah. that is, I, that I is have a city. lot of console, city console interaction. A lot of things come my way, you know, from city console that I have to do. Yeah. And, you know, you have to do them. Yeah. You know, in yeah. in a way, this is a job that in has, uh, uh, how should I put it? It um, because it, it's in a, a, a city environment because it's in a municipal job. Um, I'm identified more as a city worker than I am with the artists that I have been for yeah. 30 years. It, yeah. it, it created this, you know, separation between me and my past. That's what I was going to, that was one of the questions I was going to ask as to, you know, uh, because you have, I mean, you were, uh, when you were in San Jose, you had to deal with a lot of that. When you went to yeah. San Antonio, mm -hmm. you were there in Alameda, mm -hmm. you had to deal with a lot of that. Then you come here, and you obviously started running right from the get-go. Mm -hmm. I mean, you're right there at the opening, you're having to get everything ready, mm -hmm. uh, you're having to oversee this, and then you, you see this increase of the number of facilities, the number right. of staffing, the number of you know, so many things. And also. construction projects. We, after that, we completed and opened the Susanna Dickinson uh, Museum. Um, we renovated the uh, Zilker Hillside Theater. Uh, we're doing uh, the restoration of the Ney Museum. Uh, we're also uh, doing a renovation of the old Carver Library to make it into a uh, genealogy center. Uh -huh. uh, and, um, the, uh, we're in strategic planning processes right now with the Zilker Botanical Garden to reframe the Zilker Botanical Garden as an educational uh, center uh, and garden, uh, but a, a really kind of repositioning it uh, so that it can be uh, more successful. Uh, I also have the Austin Nature and Science Center and the Splash uh, Sheffield Education Center at Barton Springs Pool. Um, and we don't have any construction projects uh, there right now, but you know, um, that, uh, those were the, the new, new uh, pieces that were brought on board. I also oversee the Umlauf um, property that uh, the city has just received. Um, from the Umlauf since Angelina Umlauf died oh, okay. mm -hmm, last uh, June yes. and uh, left the city their property and um, about 200 pieces of sculpture. Uh, so there's going to be a long trajectory of developing that into a part of the museum as a studio uh, museum. 
Um, and of course, you know, now the Asian American Resource Center, and if we're able to be successful uh, designing and building a new Dowerty Arts Center, uh, you know, you know what the story it's a lot is. Of work. Yes, there. It's a lot of work there. <laughs> so, you know, when I came to the city, it was like leave your ego at the door. Uh, you have no self. Yes. And uh, it is, you have to completely commit to the idea of you are a public servant yeah. from sun up to sundown. Yeah. And everybody's got a different opinion. Uh, and it is very hard. I, I, I can definitely, you know, uh, I see that it's, it's, it's one of those things that you can be a friend and you can be a foe to the same person. <laughs> just, yeah. You never know. You just it never just, know. You know. Depends on the day. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. If you were to look into this crystal ball and say another five years from now, what would be your vision for the MAC in as far as, you know, where it would be in the direction? You know, um, uh, there's a couple of things that I'm working on right now that are going to help manifest uh, a vision uh, overall for my division, but in which the MAC plays a very important role. Um, I'm working on uh, a program called Any Given Child, which is a program of the Kennedy Center, in which um, they took us through a process of writing a 10-year strategic plan for how every child, K through 8, is going to um, uh, receive the benefits of an arts-rich education. And so every child in AISD, K through 8, in the next 10 years is going to receive an arts-rich education. And part of that formula is by partnering with community organizations, including Parks Department organizations, to fulfill out-of-school time, after-school time, weekends, summers, spring breaks, or what have you, with activities that are not only fun, uh, but that support academic achievement. So we become partners marching in step with AISD to support academic achievement. Now the reason why this is so important to the MAC is because of the majority of children in AISD are Latino. And we know from statistics that um, uh, a lot of these kids are coming from working class backgrounds um, and have parents who's uh, you know, English is a second language. So they have some disadvantages um, starting out. Uh, we have right now um, the opportunity to impact students between the ages of three and eight um, to support academic achievement in places like these by providing fruitful after-school, out-of-school um, experiences so that they can exceed in school because if we miss this opportunity we will be growing the largest working class population that Texas has ever seen, working poor. Um, and so we have a challenge uh, to uh, use this space and use the resources and opportunities that we have here 
and to get all the artists involved in the project as well to really focus on uplifting our children uh, and particularly Latino children. Well, there, if you get the children, uh -huh. parents will come. And parents will come. And they're the future. Now, one of the best magnets that I have used in other cities has been the Smithsonian Institution. And so I was able to complete a Smithsonian affiliation application. And uh, they told me yesterday that it's looking really good. So I hope that by next year uh, we will be welcoming the Smithsonian Institution who can bring not only the best exhibits the nation has to offer, but also educational opportunities, uh, visits by curators and researchers, um, opportunities to learn through films. Um, and they have a Latino uh, center at mm -hmm. the uh, mm -hmm. Smithsonian. Yeah. And so I think that that relationship is also going to help uh, uplift the MAC uh, by providing some very uh, high-powered, high-level um, cultural influences and, and a nationwide network of affiliate museums that can help support our work. And so I'm, I'm hoping that all of this will wrap up into a vision of creating a network of support um, to um, uh, develop uh, uh, communities um, through quality uh, arts, um, arts making, and uh, educational experiences. Brings back to what I've always thought that it should be. And it's, again, when you work so hard to have something like this created, built, then you bring with it that pride and I think in a way, some of it has been missing. But what you've just, you know, uh, painted this picture of the future, it seems that, you know, um, y'all are definitely looking into bringing back that, you know, that pride and getting it all uh, to where the community can see that, hey, they're trying. They really are trying to get it. Um, and and I am just in listening to all of these interviews, it seems that that's the direction that they really wanted to go. Mm -hmm. uh, in terms of building back the pride, building, right? Yeah. Back the pride because they saw it when you had those little buildings here. You know, mm -hmm. um, you you had people coming in, la familia. Uh, and they talk about how people would bring in food, you know, and they would be in this warehouse that was this, you know, place for them to gather for the, uh, for theater and all of this different types of events. And it didn't matter whether it was hot or cold or whatever. People would show, they would show up and they would be there. And that I mm -hmm. see that, you know, but again, as you said, with, when you're working with the schools, when you're working with organizations, with other art groups and all. Uh, it, it's just uh, five years uh, since it's opened. Um, it's been a little time. It still has more growth. 
Oh yeah. It has yeah. more growth and the history is one that... I think it takes a full 10 years uh, to really truly manifest. You know, and in speaking of pride, pride is something that um, I don't think uh, as, as city employees that we can just sort of dial up. Um, you know, we can't say, come and be prideful, you know. We, pride is something that is a, a collateral effect of people coming together and finding a common ground, finding their community. Um, you know, having a good time is part of it too, but finding their, a reflection of themselves in their neighbors um, and seeing something of quality happen um, that is a reflection of themselves so that they can see that this is, this is part of us, you know. Mm. Uh, it's a collateral effect um, of making something happen. But um, we know that you don't make things happen alone. No. You make things happen in partnership. Right. Yeah. Uh, and by inviting people in and saying, you're needed. You really are needed. Um, so I'm hoping, you know, that uh, you know, this was my first five years in uh, trial by fire. And, you know, I, I survived it and I learned a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Martin del Campo would be proud. Yeah. Martin was a short man uh, and he always wore a bow tie and he had these uh, Coke bottle glasses, you know, these really mm. thick, round glasses. He was very dapper. Uh, I learned later that he, uh, he spent money on having his chin lifted and his hair dyed, mm. and so he was a little vain, uh, and he had a cane and a little black um, uh, valise. And when he showed me uh, the drawings, uh, there were tears in his eyes. He, carefully unfolded the vellum uh, paper where he had hand-drawn the layout of the Mac. And he pointed out to me in Spanish that this was the moon and the plaza was the sun. Um, and when I'd see him on occasion, he'd come over to the plaza every once in a while. I'd ask him how, he, how it was going, if they had found the funding, and he'd shake his head, you know. But it will happen, he'd say. It will happen. And he had great belief um, that this would be a great place, a great center. From a vision to reality is what I always say. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. Yeah, you have that vision, it will become, it will come true. And I'm glad. I'm glad that it was his vision and Jaime's vision and Theodoro's vision. Um, to see this place manifest. Sometimes we found with the Mexican Heritage Plaza, it was a very beautiful building, beautiful gardens, very well kept. And people would go up to the gate and just kind of peer in. They'd open the gate and they'd peer in and say, am I supposed to come in here? Can I come in? And in some ways, this building has been a little bit of the same in that it is so beautiful, it is so nice that everyone is like, is it okay to come in? 
because we've never had anything not used to it. this nice. We're not used to it. Not used to it. And so part of the challenge is inviting people in to make it their own. Well, it's been great talking to you. I've learned a lot, and a lot of this, you know, definitely I think needed to be stated. Um, it is everyone, as I said, with, with this particular project, everyone that we've interview, uh, interviewed, some of them have different uh, ideas. Um, but I also, I wish that I could have done all myself because I know that there's so many questions, and so many questions, as you know now, in-depth questions. But this is the only way that future, when we're sitting and listening, uh, will at least have a better understanding of what, you know, you could read whatever little piece of article might be written in the Statesman or whatever, but it's still not the whole thing. And as you said, you know, um, because this is a city entity, but it's also a community. And so everyone, you know, um, it's got to work together. And we have to better understand. But uh, uh, in another five years, it will be the 10th year. <laughs> so then we'll see. We'll and we'll see exactly. Yeah, we'll see how much we've yes. done accomplished. Yes. Well, thank you very much. Thank you.